You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you so much for joining us today for uh, Bruce's book talk. The title of the book is A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. My name is Arkan Fung, and I am a faculty member at the Kennedy School and the faculty director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. And I want to start with a few announcements on behalf of the Ash Center. First, we would like to acknowledge the land on which Harvard University sits as the traditional territory of the Massachusetts people. We also recognize the continuing presence of the neighboring Wampanoag and uh, Nipmuc nations. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to briefly review the program. After my introduction, Bruce will talk for roughly 15 minutes, and then we'll, Bruce and I will have a little bit of a back and forth for about another 15 minutes, and then we'll open it up um, for broader discussion. Uh, when that happens, there's a lot of people in the room, even more on Zoom, so please raise your hand so that we can conduct the discussion in an orderly fashion. Um, Bruce Schneier is a, uh, uh, a lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's an expert on cybersecurity. Uh, he's interested in all things digital and increasingly many things democratic. I have a couple of anecdotes about Bruce. Um, <laughs> one, uh, sometimes I spend part of my summers in Cupertino doing workshops at Apple where nobody knows anything about democracy and they don't want to hear it. I do, I do stuff on uh, ethics and, and technology there. They don't know from the Kennedy School. And after one of these workshops, somebody walks up and he goes, hey, you're from the Kennedy School, right? Bruce Schneier's there. And yeah, Bruce, he has the office next to mine. He goes, yeah, you know, when I was a CS a graduate student, we used Bruce's, uh, Bruce's cryptography textbook. So Bruce has some serious uh, skills in many, many domains. Um, the other anecdote, I don't know when this was, Bruce, maybe this is about five years ago, four or five years ago, and I ran into Bruce in the hall, and I said, hey, Bruce, how's your course going? What are you doing? And he said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm having Edward Snowden in my course today. We're leaving him in from Moscow. So he's uh, very, and I love that because we've done a case on the, the Snowden leaks, but I've never talked to Edward Snowden myself, though. I think it was probably very, very delightful for the students. Um, all right, so uh, just- I wouldn't use delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Informative. Informative. So uh, I don't know how many people have had a chance to read the book or parts of it, but it is about um, hacking and what a hack is from the uh, kind of world of computers and computer systems and then using that as a metaphor for hacking broader systems and politics and finance and society, even in our own heads. I first learned of hacks when I was an undergrad at MIT in the late 1980s. And it had a slightly different, and, and Bruce is thinking maybe slightly older, I think more charming, sense of what hacking is. So the classic MIT hack is to take apart a Volkswagen and reassemble it on the great dome of MIT. And then people come out, out in the morning and say, how oh, is the car up there? Uh, I didn't do that as an undergrad, undergraduate, but we did manage to assemble, take apart and assemble one of the great, uh, 
do you guys remember Hilltop Steakhouse on Route 128? And they have a bunch of big plastic cows. We reassembled one of those on the, the John. Um, this is the first time I've talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations. I sure hope so. <laughs> So, in the MIT, you should research that. Yeah, yeah, I did not. <laughs> so, hacks in those days at MIT had a uh, several characteristics. One is there was a premium on creativity. They were super creative. Part of what made a successful hack is like, how did they do that? Uh, second, it was funny. Third, it was irreverent. They all were irreverent, like assembling, uh, moving someone's dorm room and assembling it out onto the frozen ice <laughs> of the Charles River was another popular one. Very <laughs> creative and funny, irreverent. Uh, it's supposed to be hard, like not anyone can do it. And um, in the, and these two characteristics share senses of Bruce's definition of hacking. One is that it uses the system for uh, rules other than for purposes other than which it was intended. No one intended for the great film to have a cow or a Volkswagen on top of it. And then second, it has an ambiguous relationship to rules and authority. Um, and so MI, I think part of the culture it used to be, I think MIT has changed a little bit, was to be very, very tolerant of hacking by students because I think administration saw that as part of the culture that makes the whole place successful is you get these really smart kids, you want them to be very creative and pushing the rules and reassembling things in all kinds of ways that weren't at all intended. I was, uh, has anybody spent time at MIT? There used to be this old building there that didn't exist called Building 20. Mm -hmm. It was where Noam Chomsky had his office, Josh Cohn, a bunch of other faculty, and it was the old radar building and it was the opposite of any building at Harvard. It was an old wood panel building and there was wires falling out of everywhere. And, you know, people just reassent. And I, I was uh, walking a friend through there. It's like, this is my favorite building at MIT. And my friend said, this is a dump. How can you this be your favorite? And it's, it was so MIT because you just, you take things apart and you put them together in ways that work better for you. And that is a deep, deep part of the culture of the place. And that's very relevant to hacking. And so MIT physical plan didn't care if you really violated the fire, you know, they wanted you to create stuff, right? In those days, the old days. Um, and MIT administration was so tolerant of hacking. This is in um, AJ Kaiser's book, um, that after September 11th, sometimes MIT students don't have the best judgment. As a hack, an MIT student, the Belfer people here will be, uh, shocked by this, assembled a fake bomb and strapped it to herself and walked through Logan Airport because no. she thought it was money. That's not the story. That's not, and no. That's, it, it, it was a blinky. It was not a fake bomb. It was something on your chest. That was oh, a blinky. Yeah, yeah. And it was a thing at MIT, but the security agents were so freaked out at something that was electronic with wires that blinked. After September 11th. They called it as bomb. It was never intended oh, I see. It was never intended to know. Yeah. And then the the uh, bottom line of the story is the MIT administration went to the mat to defend the student. That because, was, right. that was because really good. It is part of the norms of hacking at MIT and the protection of student create the fostering indeed of student creativity. Um, so uh, we'll come to all sorts of <laughs> other hacks, but I just kind of wanted to lay out that background of uh, what hacks used to be, and then Bruce will tell us what hacks are now. Thank you.
We didn't hold it up. I think it has an awesome looking cover. I brought a small stack. Someone said, are you going to have books there? So I, I, I wasn't, but now I am. Uh, so I think actually the definitions are great and, and they're all in the flavor of what, of what a hack is. Let me start with an example. Let's look at the tax code. Right? It's not computer code, but it's code, right? It's a set of algorithms with inputs and outputs. And those algorithms have vulnerabilities. We call them tax loopholes. And there are exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there are black hat hackers whose job it is to find those. We call them attorneys and accountants. <laughs> right, so here's my definition of a hack. Something the system permits, but is unanticipated and unwanted by the designers. Another definition, a clever unintended exploitation of a system which one, subverts the rules of that system, two, at the expenses of other part of that system. Right. So this is a subjective term. It encompasses a notion of novelty and cleverness. Right? It's an exploitation or a subversion. It's unintended or unanticipated. But here's the key. Hacks follow the rules of a system, but subvert its goals or intent. Hacks don't break the rules. They follow the rules in a way you hadn't thought. Tax loopholes are legal, right? They're mistakes in the code of the law. And that's kind of an imprecise definition, but it's sort of good enough to work with. And hacks against computer systems are what we normally think about, right? Finding vulnerabilities in the code, things the code allows, but shouldn't happen. But there are also hacks against social, political, economic systems, the tax code, the market economy, our systems of passing laws, our systems of democracy. And sort of my idea is that we normally think of hackers as countercultural loners against big, powerful systems, right? The, the computer hacker as the teenager in the black hood. And that's largely not true, right? More often, hackers are the rich and powerful, subverting systems to increase their power. The MIT hackers are the minority. And even in the computer world, like the best hackers are the major governments. They're not the countercultural criminals. And hacking is how systems are subverted, but it's also how they evolve. And so that's my framework. And I use it in a lot of areas to think about how systems have problems and how to fix them. I have some general observations. First, hacking is ubiquitous. All systems can be hacked. So in my book, I write about computer systems, sure, but also professional sports, consumer reward programs, uh, religion, religious rules, economic, political, social systems, our brains. So basically a system is just a set of rules and even the best thought out systems of set, systems of rules will be incomplete or inconsistent. They'll have ambiguities. Things designers haven't thought of, or circumstances change, new, new uh, technology. And we don't know how to make unhackable systems. As long as there are people who want to subvert the goals or intents of the tax code or the Delta Frequent Flyer program or the rules of golf, right, there will be hacks. We humans are originality machines. We invent hacks. So I talk about, uh, I don't remember mileage runs in the early days of your flyer programs. You look for ways to get a lot of vials, a very minimal amount of effort. 
1999, the pudding guy in this story. It's someone who, it is a American, no, an airline, it's, it's a generic airline King of Flyer program. They have a tie-in with Healthy Choice, the brands, and he realizes that if he buys these 25 cent pudding cups, he actually makes a profit in the miles. He buys, buys 12,000 pudding cups in the gets 1.2 million miles with $3,000, then donates the cups to charity and gets a tax write-off. <laughs> totally followed the rules to the letter, completely subverted the intent. It's a story of uh, 1975. There's a team shows up in the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. Everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they pull up the rule book and say, well, show me. And it turns out the rules of Formula One racing are silent on the number of rules of wheels a car could have because no one thought you could have not four wheels. And this worked for a few years. Uh, the board in charge, it's going to have some French name, in charge of Formula One racing, eventually modified the rules. You go read them today. It will say that a car could have no more or no less than, don't get any ideas, four <laughs> wheels. <laughs> And so lots of these examples uh, in, in hockey, we know the person who first curved their hockey stick completely changed the game. The rules never say anything about it, never done. And suddenly the puck is going faster, getting air. The game is more exciting, way more dangerous. And over the past decade and a half, there have been three or four different modifications to the rules on how much curvature you could have. Dunking in basketball was a hack. So all of these things that we think of as normal now Throw it out as hacks. Second observation is hacks are parasitic. These are hackers trying to subvert the goal of a system for their own private ends. And so Peter Thiel has a Roth IRA, uses money from the Roth IRA to buy stock in his company and gets you know, something like a few billion dollars tax-free. The Roth IRA is designed for middle-class Americans to save for requirements. That was totally a hack. But it's interesting because it's parasitical, it requires the system to work in order for the hack to work. You know, if the government said we're shutting down Roth IRAs, suddenly the hack doesn't work. So interesting examples of hacking to destruction. And uh, I, I have, sorry, a French lottery system that was hacked to the point they just shut it down. Uh, a lot of uh, stories in the book about uh, finance, banking, whether it's you know now accounts in the 1970s or the Dodd Frank regulations, these have all been hacked. Right? You know, different companies looking for loopholes to evade the regulation. Financial exchanges, insider trading, old hack. It's, it's legal now. Uh, front running. And if you're you're a trader and you sort of know trades that are coming, you can make advantageous advantageous trades for yourself before they happen. I mean, certainly all these sort of uh, subvert what the market is for, high frequency trading. This is another uh, uh, general point. And hacks are often normalized. You know, when we think about computer hacks, we think about being blocked, right? Microsoft issues a patch. The hack no longer works. That's less true in the, in, in the wider world. The hack is discovered and used, becomes more popular. The governing system, whatever it is, learns about it. Then they either change the system to prevent the hack or they incorporate the hack into the system. But high frequency trading is normal. Curving your hockey stick is normal. Six wheel car is not. And there you see the rich and powerful having an advantage because they can lobby to keep hacks that they like legal. So I don't know if you remember uh, who was 
Donald Trump tax cuts limited the amount of deduction for your state and local taxes. Widely believed to be pejorative against the coast because they have you know, high state and local taxes. Well, we all realize that we can prepay our taxes the year before and get the deduction, even though it would be you know, not a deduction the next year. A lot of people just did that. And the IRS ruled, no, you can't do that. That hack was just ruled as not allowed. The carried interest loophole, which is used by a lot of very wealthy people to evade taxes, you know, we've been trying for what, a decade to, to close that loophole and we're just unable to. And that's and that's sort of the rich and powerful. I talk about monopolies, you know, a hack against uh, the economic system of competition. You think about the notion of, of companies that are too big to fail and allowing you to uh, privatize your gains and socialize your losses. Definitely a hack against uh, market dynamics. A VC funding as a hack. A lot of things you could you can look in this, look at as hacks. And money really matters. Now we normally think of this again as something the disempowered do, but it's much more common for the wealthy to do it. <clears throat> Hacking is a way of exerting power. And a lot of time on legislative hacks, and it's the you know the filibuster is certainly a hack. Invented in ancient Rome, by the way, 60 BC. That's when the filibuster <laughs> was invented. As I, mean, I think it's Cato the Elder realizes that the rules say all business must be concluded by sundown. He looks around and says, Look, I, I never stopped talking. <laughs> and it worked, right? It, it, it was totally a hack. But gerrymandering. And then you sort of look at some of the ways legislation moves through the process. And there are hidden provisions and laws, must pass legislations, sort of different ways to hack the basic process of we all vote and the majority gets to decide. Lots of ways when, when that is prevented. And you know, these are all basically hacks. So context matters, right? Had hacks subvert the intent of the system, the question is, is it a good or bad system? Lots of times in our society, hacking is a way we uh, institute social change. It's not always a bad thing. So you spend a lot of time on of hacking is how systems evolve and improve and also how they're subverted. How do we tell the difference? And here the legal system is depends on what we use. It is not uncommon that you know I find a novel use of a law. You say, well, you can't do that. We both take our evidence, go in front of a judge who basically decides. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? And lots of laws have evolved that way. An example I use is uh, trespass of English common law, which was a hack of a law that protected people from trespassing on each other. Someone like late middle, early Renaissance, I think, uses it uh, against the government, which was, which was not intended, it's totally a hack. And the court said, yeah, that, that's valid. And our modern jurisprudence of trespass comes from that. Uh, I talked a bit about hacks against our cognitive systems. And I've written about this a bunch, and I've never really in this in these terms. But in terrorism, hacks are systems of fear. It is designed to make us overreact for a whole bunch of reasons. Think about of uh, hacking our systems of trust and authority, social media, hacking attention. These are all sort of subverting <laughs> these very natural human systems we have through different ways. So Think of it as a stack, right? So imagine, oh, I know someone wants to pay less tax. 
right? So we can hack the tax loophole, tax, hack, hack the tax code and find new loopholes. We can go up a level and hack the legislative process used to create the tax code. Or we can go hack the rulemaking process used to implement existing laws. Or we can go up another level and hack the political process used to elect the legislators who vote on the tax code. Or we can hack the media, media ecosystem to use to discuss the political processes and figure out who gets elected, blah, blah, blah. Or you can go hack the our cognitive functions that consume the media, use to discuss political processes to elect the legislators to create the tax code that has the loopholes. Or you can go down and hack TurboTax. Hmm. Right? So there's a hierarchy of systems, each more general. And sort of where you are in, in power is where you can move up and down that stack. So you see that in tax loopholes, but also hedge funds. Previously <coughs> trading moves down the stack into the tech. Carried interest deduction moves up. Now we, now we gotta make sure that law doesn't get re repealed. In a, and in tech, that's hard, but in social systems, it's easier, especially for the rich. Right? So Jeff Bezos can buy the biggest home in DC because he wants to be all the way up here, influencing you know, the whole political process to make sure his monopoly is just fine. So I end the book by talking about AI. What I'm in throughout the throughout all of this hacking has been human. Right? Humans are the creative people that are finding new vulnerabilities. It is a fundamentally human creative process that seems to be changing. We are already seeing uh, AIs finding new vulnerabilities in computer code. They're not that good at it yet, but they're going to get better. It's the kind of thing you'd expect computers to be good at, like reviewing millions of lines of code looking for patterns, just sort of the thing. You want to give an AI, but you can imagine giving an AI the nation's tax codes, the world's tax codes. I and mean, there's a, a double Dutch Irish sandwich vulnerability that Apple, Google, and others use to evade taxes for a bunch of years. Is the tax law? We get this right: of the United States, the Netherlands, Ireland, and a Caribbean offshore tax haven. And so four tax codes together have an emergent vulnerability that allowed Apple to avoid paying US tax. All right. Now that's hard to find. If we can figure out how to get a computer to look at the world's tax codes, what will it find? And that changes hacking, right? That changes, I think the important things when you think about AI and tech, speed, scale, scope, sophistication. Those are the times when changes matter. So you have hacking coming faster, used in more places, used for more things, more sophisticated hacks. I mean, is there a hack involving 12 countries? Like, like no human could find, because we just can't think in terms of 12 countries at once. But computers can. How computers change hacking, I think is gonna be really interesting to watch. And then that speaks to our governance systems. So I didn't talk about it here, but throughout the book, I, I look at how we in the computer field deal with hacks. We patch. We red team to, to find them beforehand. We have a bunch of strategies and how they apply to these more social areas is real important. What we need mostly is agility. Uh, you know, you every month, if you're a Windows user, you download about you download about 100 patches to your operating system. And that's because we have no freaking clue how to write secure software. We just know how to patch it quickly. And that's good enough, right? That works pretty well. But if it takes three years to patch the tax code, right? You know, if Jerry Manning's been around since about the mid 1800s, and we still can't get it right, 
this is a much bigger social problem. And if you start seeing hacking at computer speeds and responses at human speeds, it's probably going to strain a lot of systems. Someone finds 100 vulnerabilities in the tax code, and the rich suddenly start paying no tax legally. The system's not going to survive that. We're just not ready for hacking at computer speed, scale, scope, and sophistication. So I'm going to stop there, and then uh, we'll talk a bit. Then we'll have I'll do I'll do questions. This has been a super fun book to write. I love the examples. It's I mean the the number of hacks of the Catholic rule of the fish on Fridays. Geese, <laughs> geese <laughs> were okay because they swim. Duh. You were able to eat fetal rabbit because it swam in its mother's. Oh, yeah. No, 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 I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Who wants to eat fish on Friday? <laughs> so I think the first question, so I think one of the fundamental points of the book is to, which you highlighted in the remarks, is to highlight the asymmetry of it and the rich and powerful are better hackers, oftentimes just because they have more resources to figure out the effective hacks. And then so they can exploit hacks at the expense of the rest of us. So I guess the first question is, for the, you know, non-digital for the public acts, like financial systems or regulatory systems or political ones, what are the strategies for reducing that asymmetry? And I guess the main one that occurs to me is bigger, more capable, more badass government. So, in a sense, I think we do need more I mean, the legal system to, to look at intent in a smart way. I mean, like original intent has really been used as as a, a way to stop change there's a point where you say to peter thiel look that's not what author what iras are for give us our five billion dollars i mean th th yeah, there's yeah. there's a point where i think you're allowed to say that and, and it's it's the lobbying that that makes that so it's, it's less that i'm sure the rich i think are better at hacking because they can hire the expertise to find the vulnerabilities now, if I find a tax loophole, I make a few hundred dollars, hooray. Bill will find one that makes billions, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. he's got more money to, to use to exploit the loophole. But most importantly is that the rich are better at normalization. If they find a loophole that works for them, they're better at making sure Congress never closes it in a way that you and I are just not. So that's, I mean, that's a fundamental issue. The asymmetry in yeah. government enacting policies that benefit the wealthy rather than benefit everybody and that's been documented in all sorts of ways sure so well, so an analogy is to campaign finance reform so people yes. work on campaign finance reform say that there's a hydraulic principle that no matter what sort of dam you attempt to erect between the world of money and the world of politics it's just not going to work because money is like water and it will find the cracks in that dam and plow through right um so that's like because there's hackers who are and, interested in and inserting the money but i guess my question like so what are the range of strategies to level out the asymmetry so public there are so public funding of elections is what's yeah, yeah, mostly yeah. used in the world yeah us particularly this is a hard case in the us for a bunch of reasons one, our elections are planned in advance. Yeah. Election happens in the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. It's like the election's called, 12 weeks later they vote, or, or nine weeks. Or, I mean, they're just so short. So you just don't have that one to two year cycle where money can be spent. Two, we are such a big country and television matters way more. 
Okay. So, so the, the ad spend on television fuels it. Three is, is the party system. The way the US has parties, where we're independent, with the parties are, there's less discipline, which means that money matters more. There's a fourth I can't remember. So, this, so the, the answer is, is generally public funding, but I think you know fixing some other things. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I don't mean just the for US. elections, just the asymmetry generally, yeah. finance or whatever. I mean, pu public funding feels like the smart answer. It, it, it's a hard one because, like, why should we pay for that election? You know, because you get a better election. Yeah, and the U.S. is an outlier. You we total now. We have also an outlier in not having a professional. Uh, class of people who run elections. Yeah. Uh, elections Canada is the one I'm thinking of, but Japan has one, Australia has one, right? A, a professional organization that runs, Mexico has one, which is gutted yeah, like right. last week. Right, right. And, and we don't have that. So so our elections are based mid-century uh, threat model, which is like, I need someone from my party and your party. We watch each other at the polling place, make sure no one pulls any shenanigans. It's not the way elections yeah. for it happens these days. So that old system of we're just watching each other doesn't work. So I wonder if at some level your answer is that there's nothing short of there's nothing really you can do about the asymmetry other than eliminate the asymmetry. Like so, just like too much inequality is the problem. I think that's certainly one of the problems. Yeah. And te and tech will magnify that. I think this is important. The the the, the AI systems that are being run are not. You know, we get to play with uh, with uh, ChatGPT because right, the company is using it to make it better, not because they like us. So these, these AI systems are being used right, by, by big corporations for their interests. They'll, they'll be used to sell you stuff. Right. So then hacking is just this, it's not just, it is an important element of the vicious cycle of increasing inequality. And, and yeah, and, it's, and so when I think about hacking, it's, it's the right inequality inequality gets you wealth which you convert into policy which allows you to create more wealth which allows you to convert to policy mm -hmm. it's that wealth policy cycle yeah that you're seeing you know like like companies like uber do like yeah, make yeah. sure the laws allow us to make more money so we can have more laws like us more money right so most of the hacks in the in the book i think most of them are bad hacks in that they're parasitic in that they increase inequality or, or unequal advantage. Some of them are hacks that generate good innovations that benefit all of us. Is there anything that separates one category from the other? And what are some examples of good hacks in the sense that they generate generalizable innovations that once you normalize them, they're good for a lot of people? You know, so I think there's nothing except more. I, I try to look for a way to, oh, to, to, to prima facie yeah, yeah. like divide the two. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, hacking the, the laws of marriage to make them all more inclusive, like that was totally a hack. Right. And, right? and it was like, this is a good idea. <laughs> but, you know, what's the difference when you first see it? it there's nothing. When, why is uh, the hack of trespass law? Why was that good? Well, it's, it's obviously good now, you know, a bunch of centuries on. But at the time, you know, we didn't know. I mean, I think of all the hacks uh, of Judaism. This is a 2,000 plus year religion. It's got to survive in 2020. They got to figure out some way that you can carry a key on the Sabbath, even though you're not allowed to carry on a Sabbath. Hack, by the way, is to make it into a piece of jewelry. <laughs> That's totally that. Right? But, but you got to figure out something. Because people need to lock their doors. Hmm. <laughs> so, so that's a robustness right? hack. That's yeah. right. So these hacks are allowing systems to evolve. 
Yeah. And that's a good thing. Right, right. So there's don't be sorry on the arrow, yes. which is a total weird hack. Yeah. I mean, that's the, so there are hacks that are for my own advantage. And some of the hacks may also contribute to a robustness of a religion right. or another system. Or, or a system that, that, that just yeah. needs to evolve to present circumstances and changing the rules is hard. Yeah. Yeah. You go try to change the rules of your religion. It's super hard. Yeah. <laughs> your hope it's hard. So, <laughs> this this one goes to um so this is another question about the asymmetry so the powerful are more capable of making rules that advantage themselves and more capable of making hacks that advantage themselves so if you could somehow turn up the the prohibition on hacking or make hacking more stigmatized would that be better or worse for inequality? Because the powerful also make the rules. And the so I think it's better. I think it's better. I think it's harder to make in, in unequal rules. You try to pass oh, an equal rule, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah, get yeah. a lot of pushback. You pass a rule it's just that, more public. Yeah, you pass a rule that looks equal, but because of the way, you know, there's a comma here or half a sentence there, I, you know, I don't have to follow those rules. It, 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 I think it's easier. It's yeah. more palatable. You, you sneak into a side door. Yeah. Um, and then what are the, is there anything to be said for the morality of good versus bad hacks other than some prior account of what the good or bad consequences are or good or bad purposes are? I think there is, I don't know if I'm the person to say it. I yeah. kept trying to grasp at it, but it's sort of so far afield. I think that this, I think there is something there. Yeah. I mean, ethical about system evolution, about how things change, adaptive circumstances, how we as a species get you know, more moral, more ethical, more inclusive over the centuries. Yeah. And there's stuff here. Yeah. But I I I was never able to codify it into something I thought made sense. But I do think there is. I think someone other than me is going That's to interesting. think about that. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about, well, I can't think of ways other than by reference to some other ethical account. So if you think Edward Snowden's hack was ethical to get the data, it was ethical because the system that was enabling mass surveillance was undemocratic. Right. So, and so, so his hack was so you generally, democracy right. correct. You generally appeal way. to some larger system. Yes, right, right. right. I mean, I'm hacking this because this is unfair. Right. Or I'm hacking this because. I don't like that I'm paying tax. Right. You know, right. I don't like that. You won't, you won't let me like be a monopoly. I'm a libertarian and I don't think anybody should pay tax. Yeah. Some, but someone has to. Yeah, Actually, right. no, no. We all want everyone to pay tax except us. Right. That Remember the rule. Right. We want, we want everyone else to pay tax. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just not sustainable. Yeah. Right. Right. Maybe. Oh, on the AI. So I think you, you make a pretty big deal in your book between um, the rules of a system and whether you're violating those rules or not, like the crazy AI Go strategy doesn't violate any rules right. of Go, but no human ever would have thought of that strategy. Uh, so you make a, a pretty big distinction between what the rules are on one hand, and then a level above that, what the norms and intentions right. of the system are. Right. And so I guess, first of all, could you say a little more about that? And then second, I don't think anybody has 
that I've read is propose this for ethical AI, but is there a possibility of introducing a norm and purpose level to so, the AI rather than in addition to the rule level? So people do propose that. It's called value alignment. Uh-huh. Right? How do I build an AI that mirrors values as some, some overarching system? So I there's two things that came to mind when I thought so. I just saw a video this morning. This is a hack by an elephant. It's in Thailand. I'm not making this up. There's an elephant crossing the side of the road. So elephants have the right of way. This elephant figures out if, it, if when, a, when a truck with uh, sugar cane comes rolling by, it goes to the middle of the road, stops the truck, grabs some of the sugar cane, and lets the truck go. <laughs> totally hacking the rules. Okay, let's say it. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> elephant crossing is supposed to cross. That's what you're doing. No, it figured out how to turn this That's into awesome. a tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was such a good story. So, so I think I think that's right. So it's, you're always looking at the norms, and I, that's how we figure out. You know, Peter Thiel violated the norms of the Roth IRA. I have a bunch of stuff in my book about children. Children are natural hackers. Yeah. So they don't. They think out of the box. They don't know what the box is. Yeah, like, yeah, it's <laughs> right. And it's a great stories of them hacking all sorts of prohibitions against them communicating in social media. <laughs> they don't allow kids to talk because of child predators, right? You're terrified of that. So, but they always figure out ways ways to communicate. So I do think that I mean, AIs will will change this in ways we're not sure. They'll come up with novel strategies. The Go example is a yeah. good one. Uh, it will it will find hacks that are being done faster. It's changing things. I'm not sure how, but I, when you take a human creative process and scale it to computer speeds, things get different. Yeah, and I don't think we know how they're going to get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right, I mean the AI, the ethical AI is a long, long and rich discussion. But it is being done. Yeah, yeah. Right. Can we build an AI to mirror our values? You see two uh, two different ways to do this. One is to tell the AI what our values are, like, good luck. The other is, can the AI figure out our values from watching us in action? Just like, good luck. So I, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but those are the two sorts of ways well, I mean, that we are thinking about that's doing. That's kind of the training set problem, right? Yes. There's a lot of assholes out there that's training on also. And and, and you can you can see the aggregate of them in chat GPT. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, on the ethical <laughs> layer, you have somebody score chat, you know, if they're writing mind comp, you know, no, that's bad. Unless you want one. Right. Well, that's the ethical judgment, right? Um, uh, so you pay uh, a couple, few chapters of the book are devoted to hacking our minds and mm -hmm. cognitive hacking. So is there any, I'm, I'm asking this because a lot of the public policy students are very engaged in nudging. There's a whole behavioral, uh, behavioral insights group. Is hacking our minds ever okay? I think parts of nudging are okay. I mean, Which having parts? like yeah. the, health, the, health, the healthy food in the cafeteria uh -huh. easier to get to. Yeah. And yeah. those feel, and again, so what's what's the intent? Yeah. So if, you know, Facebook is hacking us, so we become more partisan because that's what keeps us on the platform. That's a huge, for them, it's a good idea. For society, it's huge negative good externality. Down, right, yeah, yeah. So we don't like that. But if we're being hacked to, you know, save more for retirement, maybe you think about the way we previously nudges being used in public. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so now it depends on intent. And this is actually a tough stretch for a metaphor, because like, what's the intent of our systems of authority? You know, I mean, these are not designed systems, these are evolved systems, they don't really have intent. 
So I'm, I'm pushing my metaphor here. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, I think it mostly works. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think there the ethical question is, is uh, an acceptable intent to do what's good for me, which is the cafeteria uh, putting, hiding their cookies and chips and putting in front of the vegetables and the fish. Actually, that fails completely with me because like, I guess yeah, yeah, it's not. Just, <laughs> there's a cookie in here so, somewhere. So that's the consequentialist. That's a welfare consequentialist. <laughs> I just want to be free. I want to make my own decisions. If I my religion requires yeah. me to fast and my nutritional level, although, although we know I want to be free to do that. And that's we know that rarely do you get an unconstrained. So I mean, someone's yeah, going to yeah. be nudging you. Do you want Facebook to nudge you? Yeah, yeah. Or do you want HKS to nudge you? I mean, someone's going to do it, right? But there's no neither. Yeah. You got to put the vegetable somewhere. It might be just like the person who's setting up the cafeteria this morning gets yeah, to nudge you. Yeah. Someone will put the vegetable somewhere and the cookie somewhere else. I reject that. So they're, <laughs> well, they're in 3D space in that cafeteria, they're going to be put so somewhere. Two minute, one 30 second design exercise over uh, you nudgers. So, um, Right now, when you go get a driver's license, almost all of them are nudging you either to donate your organs or not to donate your organs in the case of a fatal accident. And so you check. So some so, of them are so, opt-in. So what is pre-checked? What yeah. is opt-in? What is opt-in? What is opt-in? Right. What, so um, 30 seconds, design a driver's form that does not nudge. And this is only to respond to Bruce. Mm -hmm. Bruce, your response is, well, somebody's nudging you no matter what. Nudge. Mine is, well, no, if you're clever, you can empower me to choose rather than nudge me one way to harvest my organs or not harvest my organs. Do we want his organs? <laughs> Two checkboxes. Two checkboxes. You have to read both and check yeah. one, right? So that is. But which was on top? Yeah, randomize it. Right. Yeah. right. Um, We're doing a lot of work here. <laughs> and this was an easy yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, that was an easy one. That's the most easy one. Okay. All right, so uh, that's great. I think we should open it up for questions. We have about like, 25 minutes left. And then on the Zoom as well. Hi, afternoon, Jacob Trishina, HK student. I'm wondering whenever you're designing, uh, looking from a policy perspective, do you think in, in your book and examples, is it better to strengthen the system and the rulemaking process so that you could, let's say, delineate all these various uh, derivations of what in ways that people could bypass it or the, let's say, adjudication side to where you have this adjudication bio, like you said, with the IRS just saying, no, um, you need to pay the $5 billion in assessing original intent. I, I think that we need to be more agile. I mean, certainly we, it's not either or, you wanna do both. But I think the lesson is that uh, you'll always be able to find hacks. So the example I use in the book, I actually talk in the AI chapter. This is the King Midas story. And you remember the Midas story, right? so Dionysus grants Midas a wish, Midas wishes everything he touches turns to gold, he ends up starving and miserable as his food, drink, and daughter all turn to gold, on <laughs> right? So totally a specification problem. Midas programmed the wrong gold, <laughs> right? Bad choice. Yeah. But, you know, this is also true about genies who are maliciously pedantic about wishes, right? And then will always be able to grant you the wish in a way you wish he hadn't. <laughs> so genies can always hack your wish. And I think that's true. All systems can be hacked, and that system gets more complex, it gets easier to hack. There's more things, there's more dependencies, more interrelations. The U.S. tax code is an enormous behemoth, and you're not going to be able to, to delineate everything beforehand. So agility, and so agility in rulemaking and in saying, look, this wasn't what we intended. This, this goes against the spirit of the rule. 
And yes, you're right. The comma's in the wrong place, but it goes against the spirit of the rule. I think that's going to be a better way to do things. And that requires, uh, it requires a, a good appeal to moral and ethics. Because, you know, like suddenly gender hacking goes against the spirit of the rules. But turns out the rules were too restrictive. And, and, and now, you know, it's a better world. So how do we know the difference between what that and, and what Peter Thiel is doing? It gets hard. But I think we have to empower judges with that authority and, and hopefully get wisdom. I don't think there's an, any other way to make it. Yes, so, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade took like 50 years of campaign by the Christian right. Was that a hack or was there, or is the time frame too long? Or there yeah, I mean, I know. So, so I, is or isn't, there's always a lot of stuff in the gray area. I mean, I'm not a philosopher. My definition is not precise. You know, you could argue it was a hack. I mean, just sort of the long-term attempt to, you know, sneak judges onto the court who say one thing when they're going to do something else. I don't know. I wouldn't use it as an example because it's not clean. Most of the examples that are politically charged are much less good to use in your book. <laughs> never use guns as an example for anything. <laughs> How good it is because half your audience is going to stop reading, no matter what you say. So, oh, if you could, I'm sorry, if you could say your name before, and then kind of what part, where, where you're from. Or so I'm, I'm Carly Winkler, I'm Australian um, Research Fellow in Belfast Center. That's oh, part of the Captain program. Um, so I guess my question gets to globalization. You talk a little bit about um, when you start going internationally, you know, you can have this, this system of rules that, you know, um, in the tax code, pile four countries together, and then it makes loopholes that no one really knows how to fix. Um, because no one is inherently in charge of all of those four things. Yes. So given that we're kind of moving in this general this direction, this massively globalised world and things on the internet, obviously, uh, designed in a way that has no one in control of any part of them, who then fixes things? And how do we design some systems where you can? So otherwise, because otherwise, you know, maybe people that we don't want are going to win this fight and it's going to do weird things with such. So I think that's really important. Right? It's because you need a good governance system. If you are in charge of, there's a hack in cricket, like a few years ago, someone realized you could hit the ball behind your head. It was totally legal, but no one thought of it. <laughs> so, but there's a, a cricket authority. There's a people in charge of the game who will now decide whether that is good or better, makes the game better or worse. And when there's, when there's someone who's in charge, whether it's Microsoft or, you know, whatever the world cricket people are, <laughs> or, uh, you know, Delta Airlines, we'll, we'll look at a hack and then make a quick decision. If it is, you know, a hack of the U.S. law, or even worse, you know, international mess of laws that coincide, or the internet, there really isn't a body, and that does make it harder. And hacks do get more normalized, and they stay around longer, because it, so yes, as we as as our as our social technical systems get larger than our governance systems, there's mm. definitely a mismatch. There's like there's, there's no country with the right footprint to uh, regulate Facebook anymore. Facebook has more users than Christianity. You know that. It's big. <laughs> so, so yes, I think that, I think that is a, a big issue. I think the thing is globalization is more the complexity of everything. Just, just going, going outside of any jurisdiction. Any solutions? <laughs> we, uh, <Next. sighs> yeah. <laughs> It's a governance problem, right? I mean, I don't think there's a solution that's, that's hacking in particular. I think we have a real problem of modern governance. And there's nobody who can regulate Facebook. 
because nobody's big enough. So, so it's it's bigger than this. Wonder, um, and just taking off this question a little bit. My understanding is in the cyber domain, a big part of it is a cat and mouse game, and part of the answer is more meaner cats that can catch the hackers and patch the holes. But the more meaner cats, I think, doesn't play as much of a role for your social, political, financial hacks. And is that an asymmetry or should it play a bigger role? That's interesting. So I think it more is arms races. So, you know, spam versus spam detection, deep fakes versus deep fake detection. So, you know, better defensive systems are, are an answer there, but the arms race just, you know, it's a red queen's race, you know, I, you, you do better just to keep up. I, I guess I'm thinking my friend who uh, worked at Wage and Hours for the Department of Labor and his mission in life was to find and nail employers who were underpaying or miscounting the hours of their employees, right? And I think if we had like a, and some of those are hacks, some of right. them are just flat so, out illegal. And if we get right. more of those enforcers, like 10,000 of those enforcers, that would help a lot. That'd be great. And certainly the political party is underfunding all yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's right. So the more, I guess, <laughs> the bigger, meaner cats. So, yeah. uh, that's just more enforcement. Now, now it depends if they're actually just cheating, that works. Yeah, but if they're exploiting a loophole, yeah, then you need legal, Then yeah. we need, you know, we need some kind of labor court that says, "Look, right. you can't do this. Right. You got to appeal to some more general yeah. system." Yeah. So yeah, um, I have a comment and a question. Um, I'm, well, I'm my name's Diane Williams. I'm an ARVR edtech entrepreneur. Oh. I'm an MIT alum, and I want to say that they did you put a car up in the? <laughs> <laughs> I. I'm 10 years older than you, so <laughs> I know about all the hacks, definitely, the cows, the cars, everything. But I think MIT sort of like, they didn't clamp down on that. I think they're channeling that brilliance into many, many more hacks. I've been a judge or a mentor for Hack MIT. Oh, I, I organized at the MIT Media Lab, I was one of the organizers for an ARVR. Um, hackathon and we had people I was in charge of even though I don't have any training in DEI I wanted to create the kind of tech environment that I wish existed when I was in tech before, before I became a refugee <laughs> from it and by going after people with different subject matter expertise from different parts of the world different parts of the country to help close some of the loophole the holes when they're creating their hacks and it seemed to be very very productive so I think that's what they're trying to do to find and we had rules too like for instance I said I will not help any group wants to help uh, something military like how to kill people more efficiently I'm sorry you know I'm not going to be involved with that it's the uh, first definition of hacking yeah well yeah well that's what I'm saying so I'm saying that at least the environment is very very uh it's it's just it's just since I've been school it's just amazing it's like hacks every week yeah. you know, going on so um my question for Bruce is when I was uh, taking my courses at CCL, there was no, I never was taught how to write um, secure code. Is that possible to compete with the market when you're building something that has to go, you know, people say, just write the code so you're gonna get something out, out to market versus taking some time to write something more thoughtfully and um, just to complete, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a hard question. And actually, uh, <laughs> Biden's cybersecurity strategy released last week 
tries to address that. Uh -huh. uh, and this is this is an incentives issue, right? I mean, you can take the time and money to write it securely, or you could just put it out there. This is cheaper and faster, and this will do better in the market. So how do we incent this? And it's going to be through regulations and standards. And you know, you're not allowed to produce code that's insecure. Just like you can't make a car that's going to blow up on impact. Pajamas that catch on fire, yep, they're cheaper. No, you can't sell them. Right? And, it's, and it's going to be stuff like that. Um, you know, that being said, we don't know how to write secure code. We know how to do better. But with exceptions like the space shuttle, we just don't bother. <laughs> and, and so, so it is going to be a matter of, of incentives. And uh, so Biden's document talks about using the uh, government's buying power. And we can only buy things that meet these standards. But so then vendors meet them and then we all benefit. Mm -hmm. They're going to talk, they talk about regulations, minimal standards, security by design. So th those are stuff in the computer world. You can move those ideas into policy. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you have to want to do it. Some I think is going to be transparency. I think about those uh, <clears throat> hack finding AIs. Like let's use them on proposed tax regulations. Mm -hmm. Let's take a tax regulation before it's before it's passed, run it through it's this system, red team it. Red yeah. team it right? It doesn't mean they get fixed, but they can become part of the debate. Yeah. Remember, some of these are put in on purpose. Right. Yes. Yeah. But you know yeah. that's going to be a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a question from the Zoom. Which is that what are the pros and cons of moving toward radical simplification, for example, a value added tax versus an income tax? So I think, I think so, so in general, yeah. general, simpler systems are less hackable. Mm -hmm. But you know, sometimes you just can't do that. I'm not convinced, you know, is a VAT simpler than a sales tax? I don't know. It's, it's yeah. different. Or an income tax, right. simpler than an income, because there's like I mean, right. I mean, the fact that it's, kinds of income. Yeah. And, and those are all designed to, to, to do certain policy things. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and a lot of those we probably want. Yeah. So we want to simplify, but not to the point, I mean, like a flat tax is the simplest and probably the worst. Yeah. But certainly it is the less least hackable. But it doesn't mean we're going to do it, right? Right. Because it's not what we want out of right. a out of a taxation policy. Because unhackability is not the only. It's not the only goal. Not right. the only goal. Yeah. Very good. Right. Give us all your money. Totally unhackable. <laughs> yeah. Hello, my name is Jose Garcia, fellow at the Watershed Center. Yeah. I have a question about whether you consider that it is possible, sorry, to fix. Uh, aggressive hacking in the, at international level. If I take your example of Apple, uh, wealth is increasingly global, international, while tax policy is national. So uh, I may consider that aggressive tax planning by a corporation is an aggressive hacking, but there are also uh, tax jurisdictions that want to attract this ag aggressive tax, uh, uh, tax planning, and they are also aggressive tax jurisdictions. How do I fix this asymmetry of interest in, in, in the international arena from the side of the, the, the states, of the, the governments that would like to fix the planning of other governments? So this is really hard. I mean, uh, I mean, Ireland is a tax haven, and they like being a tax haven because they get financial benefit from being a tax haven. So how do we in the national community tell Ireland they can't do that? So this is got to be someone in this building who's thought about stuff like that. I mean, that feel, but so this is that mismatch between the governance structures and, and the entities doing the hacking. And surely we, we, need, we need to solve this problem, you know, much more generally. I think you're 100% right that 
often the jurisdictions are allowing the hacks, they get benefits, even though it's parasitical on the larger system. And, and maybe Ireland is tax haven is a good example of that. Hey, Bruce, uh, Nick at the, at the Ash Center. So your four S's, speed, scale, scope, and sophistication, those sound very well suited for the private sector. They're gonna put a lot of resources behind that. And you, your concept of the HGS, the hacking governance system, what is it gonna take for civil society to be able to respond to those four S's? Or what, what does civil society not have now that it needs really quickly to be a counter to what I imagine is a highly resourced four S's from the business community? So I worry about the tech mismatch. Yeah. The fact that the AIs are being employed by Apple, Apple Google. I started with the notion of like even an AI that hacks the tax code. We don't get to run it. Goldman Sachs will. It's not gonna be here at Harvard. So we need one here at Harvard. But, you know, I think we actually need to be able to have that kind of tech available to civil society mm. to, you know, test a new tax law or to, you know, try to uncover the tax loopholes that are being used by by these by these corporations. So I I, I worry about the technology mismatch. So I think the expertise will be there. There will be people who want to do this. They're not going to have the ability the to match the tech. There, right? Yeah, the yeah. tech won't be there. Yeah. So that's what I worry about most right now, that that the way the AI trajectory is magnifying the, the, the current power inequalities. Mm -hmm. Yep. And just to follow up, are there governance structures, you know, how do you balance speed and deliberation, right? Uh, right. So, so in, in computers, we do it with agility, right? We iterate, we iterate fast. So we realize the system is too complex to model well, yeah. So we try it, it does. and then if it doesn't work, we, we patch it. We patch it again, we patch it again. And this is like within days, within weeks. Uh, I think we're going to need that kind of agility with uh, with governance structures. I don't think in any other way. You know, so what, when I think about systems, is there a system design class in this school? There really should be. I think you know, there are simple systems, there are complicated systems, there are complex systems, and there are chaotic systems. I mean, those are the four levels. We in society really tend to uh, try to control complex systems with complicated systems. And that's worked pretty well, and that's what's starting to fail. And the only way we know to deal with complex systems is through iteration, because we can't, we, we can no longer model them with our complicated systems. So we just, I think agility is, is really going to be the thing we need to deal with so much of what this century is gonna do. The systems are getting so complex, bordering on chaotic, that we, we need to be able to be agile. So I think that's how, I mean, deliberative is gonna to be too slow. So we need to be able to try it and then deliberate as we go, which is really how software works these days. I know it's, it's not a great answer, yeah. but I, I'm not sure what else there is. Agile deliberation, stay tuned. Yeah. Is your just, we just made that up. Let's do it. <laughs> so I think what you're projecting is the rate of hacking, of socially significant hacking going up. Not going up. So do you think it's gone up or is this a AI hinged I think prediction? I think it has gone up. It's gone up with globalization, with the complexity of systems, mm. with a uh, 
you know, this notion of if it's legal, it's okay. <laughs> like the definition yeah. of moral. Yeah. If you're a CEO, it's social. The, yeah, the, but move fast and break things is a social normative change, it, not it, it in is. the first instance a technological. But but, it, but it's fueled by tech. I mean, yeah. you can you you have you have more an ability to to twiddle knobs with tech. I mean, if you were an advertising company hundred years ago, oh, right. you had true. ways that's to do true. things. It would take yeah, you months true. or years. Your yeah. Facebook, you run hundred experiments at yeah. once, figure out what works. Day, Two days yeah. later, you got the thing going. You just have your feedback loop is faster. Yeah. So you have more it's ability. Really yeah, you have more ability to, yeah. to twiddle the knobs and, and see what works. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, question from the Zoom. One of the greatest undoing of hacks in my lifetime was the Tax Reform Act of 1986, documented in Showdown at the Gucci Gulch. Uh, uh, it nearly equalized rates of taxation among ordinary income and capital gains. So for those who don't know, capital gains are taxed at a fraction of the ordinary income rate. No one knows why. Uh, well, we do know why. Um, and, uh, but out of armies of lawyers and accountants who created a zoo of tax-structured, uh, tax-advantaged-structured investments. What are the other grand unhackings that benefited well-organized interests of the wealthy and powerful? So there, I think this is like... Uh, something that didn't happen, right? We were about right. to equalize capital gains and ordinary tax rates, and then the wealthy and powerful with the armies of lobbyists I come in and- Carried interest loophole is a good example. We, yeah. we just barely repeal it like three or four times. Uh, Dodd-Frank has some really weird hacks in yeah. it. But it's better than no but Dodd -Frank. Dodd -Frank. I think it's yeah. better than no Dodd-Frank, yeah. but it was, I think, passed with a bunch of Loophole, and then I, I talk about in my book some of the ones that are discovered that just one word is not a different word, and primarily instead of it just means you can just play some games. Those are the two that come yeah, to yeah. mind. Yeah, Inter interesting question, it's a great right? Question. Uh, it's a great question. Where we just barely were able to do it. Yeah, and, and failed. Yeah. Thank you very much. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.